It's time, once again, for Deep Thoughts. Hey, you're listening to Deep Thoughts, a podcast exploring the Christian faith a little more deeply. I'm your host, Matt Schantz. And those of you who listen to Deep Thoughts regularly know that most episodes feature a guest who's written a book on an aspect of the Christian faith or is deeply immersed in a particular field or has a lot of wisdom to share about a subject I want to explore on the podcast. But from time to time, we sprinkle in a Deep Thought episodes where I riff on a particular subject. Well, that's what episode 68 is, a Deep Thought on Christianity and the isms. By that, I mean... How does Christianity stack up against and interact with concepts like materialism, individualism, secularism, and pluralism? You know, the isms. So here we go. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. That's the late John Lennon singing about how much better the world would be without religion. In his view, and this is a sentiment shared by secularists who view the material world as all there is, in his view, if we would live like this is all there is, there would be tranquility and peace. The logic is, it's conflicting religious belief that causes divisions, hate, and wars in the world. Get rid of religion and we will have utopia. Now, there have always and will always be religiously motivated conflicts in the world, for sure. But the 20th century itself serves as evidence that getting rid of religion won't get rid of hate and war and death. The most violent dehumanizing regimes in history have taken place in the last 100 years and have been atheistic not religious. Stalin in Russia, Mao in China, Rouge in Cambodia, and Hitler in Germany, they were driven by Marxist, communist, atheistic philosophies. In other words, a rejection of God was at the center of their system of belief. Rouge killed 2 million, Hitler 6 million, Stalin 20 million, and Mao 50 to 70 million. That's between 78 and 98 million people killed in the 20th century, not because of religions such as Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, but because of materialistic secularism. Now, materialism is the view that the material world is all there is. Therefore, Meaning and purpose come from working hard to earn as much as possible so you can make the most of life. That's where we get the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Now, related to all of this is another ism. It's secularism. Now, the secular worldview prioritizes the scientific method as an explanatory framework for life and advances a rational and materialistic view of the world. In other words, a belief must be proven by science to know it's true. Secular humanism essentially is a religious worldview in which man is the measure. Mankind is the ultimate norm by which truth and values are to be determined, 
and all reality and life center upon human beings. We act as God. So where secular humanism is a man-centered ethical system that says, I can, so I don't need God, Christianity is Jesus-centered and says, I can't, so I need God. Now, examples of secular a secular worldview would be um, a belief has to be proven by science to know it's true. Now, listen, Christianity, and, and, and I think I can speak for really all the major religions of the world, and not that I should speak for them, um, but can say that it's not that they're anti-science. The idea, Christianity, essentially in history and um, religious belief, invented science to say, God created, now let's go look and see what he's done. Um, Let's analyze it. Let's look at the data. Let's discover, because God has made this world. Um, Secular humanism will say, um, science drives the bus as opposed to God driving the bus and we will use science. Okay. So, um, secular worldview would say a belief has to be proven by science to know it's true. Uh, another example of the secular worldview is a person's life is valuable only if society sees it as valuable. And so the starting point again is not God. And because every human being is made in the image of God, they're intrinsically valuable. Um, secular humanism will say what value they will, and, and this differs over time, but placing a value on the person. So in Hitler's Germany, um, Jews were considered, like, they were devalued to the point that um, they they would speak of them as like rodents, and then therefore we can kill them. They're not worthy of dignity. And that's how that would go. And so a person's life is valuable only if society sees it as valuable. And then a third example of a secular worldview is meaning and purpose come from working hard to earn as much as possible so you can make the most of life. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, author theologian James K.A. Smith wrote, the secularist's doubt is faith. What counts as temptation for the non-believer is belief. If the believer is haunted by an echoing emptiness, the unbeliever can be equally haunted by a hounding transcendence. What a line. He goes on to say, what if our modernist secularist projects of improvement have unwisely severed us from what makes for a flourishing society? He's giving a critique on today's society, saying it's found wanting. Maybe we've looked in the wrong places. He goes on, while some might rail against myths of what lies beyond the frame, um, what can be seen, many others might be asking, what's up there? And then he says this, our calling in a secular age might be less a matter of securing our status and more a matter of bearing witness to what's missing especially to those who are feeling the claustrophobia of that frame, we might be surprised at the response. I love that vision, and I think that's exactly right. Our calling in a secular age might be less a matter of securing our status and more a matter of bearing witness to what's missing. Materialistic secular humanism is missing the transcendent, the hopeful, and the meaningful. Christians have the opportunity to put the beauty of the gospel on display for those around us who who possess, really, a fatalistic worldview. Now, materialism is also a term for the desire for or love of material possessions, right? Here's the logic. If this world is all there is, then pursue whatever pleasures lie right in front of you. 
But here's the thing, and I, I think anecdotally you know this, it's never enough, is it? Maybe you've tasted what all of the material success in the world can get you, but you know it doesn't compare with Jesus. It's found wanting. Or maybe you don't know that it compares with Jesus. You're just left wanting. For example, I know what it's like to pine for a new TV and then get it. And then two weeks later, be like, meh. It gives you a feeling of brief euphoria and excitement as you set it up and maybe watch that first movie. And then you're kind of like, all right, next thing. Right? I know what it's like to do ridiculous amounts of research on the right sectional for the living room or vehicle for the family and then get it and then be over it and be like, what's the next thing? Now, those are, biblically speaking, God substitutes or what the Bible calls idols. And idols let you down real quick. But if you've encountered the God of the universe and come to discover that he loves you so much that he sent his son to die in your place and that eternity with Jesus awaits, the God substitutes are a sad alternative. They are found wanting. Help me, Jesus! Help me, Jewish God! Help me, Allah! Tom Cruise! But how did he get down to his underwear that fast? Tom Cruise used a witchcraft on me to get the fire off me! Look, here, help's coming. Wait a it's, minute. It's Cal Norton. Oh, God! Please don't let the invisible fire burn, my friend! That is some classic Will Ferrell playing Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights. What's Ricky doing there? He's mistakenly believes he's he, his life is on the line, that he's on fire. But what he's doing is he's hedging his bets. Hilariously, he's calling on all the gods that he can think of, including Tom Cruise. (laughs) Why believe in one when you can have all of them? This kind of religious pluralism has been uh, uh, widely embraced by Western society. Comedically, Will Ferrell's making it look foolish, but it is what's been widely embraced in our society today. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson wrote about pluralism, Any notion that a particular ideological or religious claim is intrinsically superior to another is necessarily wrong. The only absolute creed is the creed of pluralism. Pluralists contend that no one religion can know the fullness of spiritual truth. Therefore, all religions are valid. Now, what's interesting is that this statement itself is a strong assertion about the nature of spiritual truth. My hero, Tim Keller, put it this way. The minute one says all religions only see part of the truth, you are claiming the very knowledge you say no one else has. And they are demonstrating the same spiritual arrogance they so often accuse Christians of. In other words, to say all is relative is itself a truth statement, but dangerous because it uses smoke and mirrors to make itself sound more tolerant than the rest. He goes on to say this, and I think this is super insightful and important to grasp. We live in a society that's very diverse, not just ethnically, but also religiously. But when pluralism starts to become a philosophy, when it starts to become a religious dogma, then it becomes a different animal. And that's what I want to call relativism, he says, or religious relativism, or philosophical pluralism. It goes by different names, but that is the dogmatic religious assertion that all religions are basically the same, that no one knows the truth about God. 
And no one can know the ultimate truth about God in a way that invalidates other people's religious opinions and the belief that it that it's arrogant to say that you have the truth religiously, and it's arrogant to try to persuade other people to believe what you believe religiously. That's relativism, he says, philosophical pluralism. He goes on to say, I would say that's the default belief of most people you run into in our city. He was a New York City pastor. Whether they're religious or not, most people think that religion, they think about religion that way. Relativism is itself religious belief, though, he says. Now, this moral relativism and philosophical pluralism asserts that God is ultimately unknowable, that no one can really know the truth about God. But that begs the question, how can one be sure that's true? To affirm God as unknowable is to make a religious assertion that assumes ultimate understanding on spiritual reality. Christians have certainly been, look at, Christians have certainly been arrogant about communicating the exclusivity of Christ, that he is the one and only way. And while we believe that Jesus is God revealed to humanity for our salvation, Christians should never be arrogant. Pride actually betrays the gospel and the very teachings of our faith. But what I do want to show you is that to hold a relativistic point is to hold an exclusive religious view. All paths lead to God or God is not knowable. Those are exclusive claims and religious views. Then the question becomes, are they the most compelling, intellectual, and lovely views? Because there's a lot of evidence for the life of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the death of Christ, tons of first-person accounts of the resurrection of Christ, and so on. Now, look, this doesn't prove Christianity, but it is compelling historical data that supports belief in his teaching. Pluralism, therefore, must do the same. Look, if we're going to be intellectually honest, moral relativism and religious pluralism must do the same. And there are some major hurdles you have to get over in order to assert that. For example, Christianity teaches that heaven and hell exist. So do Judaism and Islam. Yet religions and philosophies like Hinduism and Buddhism do not. Now, these cannot both be true. They cannot be equally valid. Heaven either exists or it doesn't. But what we can't do is say they're equally valid and equally true. Pluralism's none of us have or none of us know all the truth disguises itself as a supposedly humble position how could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality you just claimed that none of the religions have? Jesus, on the other hand, says, unlike Ricky Bobby, <laughs> you don't have to hedge your bets. I am knowable. I have made myself known. I am the way. I have revealed myself to you so that I could invite you to draw near to me precisely so that I could rescue you and save you and make you mine. You don't have to hedge your bets. and You don't have to walk alone. There's no crushing weight on you to get it right because I took the crushing weight upon myself so you could get joy and freedom and hope and peace and life. And nothing compares with that. 
I know it can be really overwhelming figuring out who to be and when, who you are now and how to act in order to get where you want to go. I have some good news. It's totally up to you. I have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. That was modern philosopher and poet Taylor Swift in a commencement speech at NYU uh, this past spring. And she got the terrifying part right. The majority of cultures historically and today have um, a communal emphasis. They, this idea of do what's best for the family and the community at large. But, but not so in Western culture today. Individualism is the straw that stirs the drink in our society. Be whoever you want to be. My truth. Live your best life. Follow your heart. It sounds like the most freeing thing in the world. But I would argue that it's actually slavery. Your whole life becomes proving to yourself and everyone around you that you matter, that you're unique, that you're special. When we say be true to yourself, we're saying do whatever feels good, listen to your heart. But the biggest mistakes we make in life come from living this way, I think. Rather than receiving the wisdom of others or committing oneself to moral teachings, the advice of our age is be true to you. In the Incredibles movie, Buddy says to Mr. Incredible, you always say be true to yourself, but you never say which part of yourself to be true to. And Buddy becomes the villain because he is true to the part of himself that is evil, essentially. The individualistic be true to yourself is so overly simplistic of a mantra that it f- fails to acknowledge the fact that we're multifaceted and we're, we're multifaceted and we're not all good that much within us would actually lead us astray and destroy us it's it's a platitude that doesn't do justice to the complexity of human identity and the bible's response to follow your heart is the heart is deceitful above all things Christianity says true freedom actually lies in recognizing that you are not your own, to borrow a phrase from friend of the podcast, Alan Noble. True freedom actually lies in recognizing that you are not your own, but belong to Christ. He defines who you are, so you don't have to. That's freedom. Stop striving, stop performing, and stop trying to prove yourself to others. Look, when it comes to individualism, we need to see Jesus isn't just some add-on for Project Self. Our whole world gets reoriented around Jesus when we embrace him. Let me give you an example. The best definition I know for humility is self-forgetfulness, not self-loathing or other false humility, but the best definition I know for humility is self-forgetfulness. And we would do well to forget ourselves more in our society today. True humility, self-forgetfulness, is knowing that you were made to glorify God, and we do that by living for Him and being a blessing to those around us. It's actually, I think, a compelling anti-individualism. To see people not living for themselves, but living for God and living for others, I think that's in stark contrast to the majority of people in our society today who live for self. See, the promise of Christianity is not that all your aspirations of self-fulfillment will come true, but that you get Jesus. 
And individualism, none of the isms for that matter, compare with that. Um, my grandfather was a Baptist minister his whole adult life. He grew up in Nova Scotia and, and loved poetry. It's like from, a, you know, it was a different era. And I remember him reciting entire multi-versed poems off the top of his head when it fit the event. You know, we're doing something as a, as a family, there's a big family gathering and something took place and it would make him think of a poem and off he'd go <laughs> reciting it. And uh, here's one he would recite every New Year's. And I think it speaks to the antidote to individualism. It's about trust and submission. It's about surrendering our lives and direction and will into the kind hand of God. It's by Minnie Louise Haskins. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. Okay, I hope you're having a great summer and are able to take deep thoughts with you wherever you go. Next up, I've got an interview with Jonathan Dodson on his book, The Unwavering Pastor, that I can't wait to share with you, as well as one from one of my favorite Aussies coming up in August. Thanks for listening to Deep Thoughts. I hope it helps you in fostering deep faith.